Mark chapter 11, I'm, uh, I took some uh, drugs of some sort. Someone gave me some cold stuff. Not like drugs, like Carpinteria street drugs type of stuff, but I mean, like cold medicine. And uh, hmm, took too many. Mark chapter, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing with you. Mark chapter 11, Lord, as we come before your word, we realize that it is living and that it's active, and God, that it is your word to us. And uh, I would just confess on behalf of the church in America that we so often take your word too lightly. We take it for granted. We've got a multitude of Bibles on our shelves, multitude of Bible helps available to us, many translations at our fingertips, and yet our brethren and our sistren worldwide are longing to have the Word of God, to have a Bible of their own. There's people in villages that love you and have been saved by you and just have a page of the Bible that they pass around the village. We've got such a wealth of stuff before us, and yet we would confess, having neglected your Word, we have subsequently neglected prayer. Lord, I repent on behalf of the church, this one and the church in America, for our complacency our lack of fervency in prayer. Lord, for those of us that it's been out of just not knowing, ignorance, have mercy on us. For those of us that know the wonder of prayer, have read about it in your word and have just been too consumed with ourselves and the busyness of this world to press into such a joy, such an honor, such a privilege, such a calling, Lord, would you gently, wonderfully rebuke us this morning want you to move us from complacency to white-hot fervency. want you to set our hearts ablaze with the things that stoke you, Lord. Break our hearts with the things that grieve you. Make us men and women after your own heart. God, we would pray corporately now as a church that you would teach us to pray, even as the disciples said, teach us to pray. Make us effective in prayer, fervent to see you affect change in the world around us. Accomplish this by your Spirit, working through your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of context for Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 26 in a minute. We've been out of Mark for a couple weeks. Lock and Cheetah took place, and we spoke about that from the pulpit. Last week, I was snowed in in Philadelphia after having taught there and missed my time with you. Pastor G was here talking about the Holy Spirit, so... After a two-week absence, we're going to pick it back up in the book of Mark. I want to remind you about the context. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, we have the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry, as you will remember, was Jesus' technical and prophetic first coming to the nation of Israel and the world. That is when he was presented publicly as the Messiah, as the King, as the Deliverer, as the Savior. And the disciples begin to cry out that day, Hosanna in the highest, save now, glory to the king. And the Pharisees said to the disciples, quit singing Hosanna, save now, to this guy who's clearly claiming to be the Messiah, fulfilling many prophecies. And you'll remember that Jesus said, if my disciples cease to cry out, even the stones would cry out. In other words, it was a pivotal moment in history that could not be stopped when Jesus was presented to the world prophetically and technically as the Savior. That was the Sunday, the first week of Passion Week. For the rest of the time in the book of Mark, which will probably be about a year that we'll be studying this, it'll just be one week of time. Mark 11, 1 through 11, was that Sunday event of the triumphal entry. Today we'll be looking at Monday and part of Tuesday. 
Jesus, after the triumphal entry, went up on the Temple Mount, looked around, temple services were over. He left, went and spent the night outside the city. Next day, he's coming back in with his disciples, and we see in verses 12 through 14 that he cursed the fig tree. He's walking along, there's a fig tree, it's got leaves on it, no fruit. Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit of you again. In the hearing of his disciples in the nation of Israel, he curses the fig tree, it withers and it dies. What in the world was he doing? He was teaching Israel and subsequently us that God is not impressed with leafy displays of religiosity, but he wants a real inward relationship and he is wanting to work in you a genuine heart transformation. That there is not to be some show of religion, but there is to be the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the simple promise that we looked at that week, week of January 9th, was from John 15, if you abide in Christ, you will bear much fruit. And we talked about what it means to abide, to dwell, to live, to remain. If we daily cultivate our relationship with the Lord, the promise is we will bear fruit. Carpinteria is famous for lemons and avocados. Amen? God bless our little town. You go into the avocado orchards, and here's what you never hear. Trees going, come on, fruit. You never hear them straining to bear fruit, do you? No trees ever do that. If you spend time listening to the trees, you're weird. Having done so myself to test my theory, I guarantee you they never grunt or groan or strain to bear fruit. You put the tree in some fertile soil, you give it some water in the light of the sun, it's going to bear fruit. You plant yourself in the soil of God, you allow the water of the Word of God and the Spirit of God to fall upon you, and you bask in the light of the S-O-N and you will bear fruit abiding in Christ, cultivating a relationship with Him, you're going to bear fruit. And the judgment given to the fig tree will not be for you. Now we pick it up in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and He entered the temple, and He began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And He wouldn't permit anybody to carry anything through the temple grounds. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? My house shall be called a... Check one, two. Okay. Accidentally turned off my mic. Sorry. Blew my nose. Turned off my mic. Great sermon. (laughs) My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for all the multitude were astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. This is Tuesday morning now. Withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you curse is withered. Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has said is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. 
But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, some of you that have the NIV translation, you'll notice that verse 26 is missing from your Bible. Verse 26 in some of the ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark is not there. Some of the ancient manuscripts have that verse. Some of them don't. And so uh, the people who put the NIV translation together said, you know what, we're not going to include it. People who put the New American Standard together include it, the New King James included it, the Old King James, the Revised Standard Version, the Amplified Bible, the Living Bible, so on. They included these, but the NIV did not. It doesn't matter whether it's in Mark or not in your Bible because Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, exact same thing. So we know that the Lord said this. For some reason, it is in some ancient manuscripts of Mark and not in others. No big deal. Don't give it another thought. The Lord said it in Matthew anyway. Ready to move on? What is Jesus doing? Goes up on the Temple Mount. Here is the worship center for the nation of Israel. It is the Passover week. During Passover, according to uh, Mosaic law, all the Jewish males were required to be in Israel. Made good sense for them to take their women folk and their kids with them. And so there was a great pilgrimage during this time to Jerusalem. I say Israel, I meant they were required to be in Jerusalem. And so the population of Jerusalem, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, would swell to well over 2 million during this high holiday. As Jesus went up onto the Temple Mount, there was a whole slew of people up there. The area where he was was the court of the Gentiles. That is the outer court of the temple. You would go onto the Temple of the Mount, you'd have the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, You would have the inner court where the court of women, the court of men, and the court of priests was. And then you would have the holy place and then the holy of holies. Jesus was in these outer courts. People would come there and they'd want to make sacrifices to the Lord according to the Mosaic law. But they would have to buy those sacrifices. And the priesthood, having been perverted, were charging exorbitant prices. They would have to exchange their money according to Deuteronomy chapter 30. They had to pay a temple tax. It could only be done with temple money. So they would come and exchange their Roman or Greek or other Jewish coins. And the perverted priesthood would do it for a profit. Exorbitant rates. And so people were taking advantage of those who just wanted to come and seek the Lord. Now notice that Jesus said, My house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. This outer area was called the court of the Gentiles. Biblically speaking, a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. According to the Bible, there's two people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. The temple was a religious structure of Judaism. But Gentiles were invited to come to the outer courts and seek the Lord, pray to God, meditate upon His Word, and commune with Him. What was going on here was there was so much busyness, so much crookedness, so much trafficking that nobody, Jew or Gentile, was able to commune with the Lord in all that hustle and bustle. And Jesus said, wait a minute! This is supposed to be a quiet place of communing with the Father. You guys are perverting it, you're taking advantage of it, you're misusing it. And so he overturned their tables, their seats, and he chased out the money changers. Jesus here, in no uncertain terms, was protesting their busyness and their crookedness. Now listen to me. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, that you, individual Christians, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? In Old Testament times, it was this temple that was in Jerusalem. 
Now, in the church age, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God was there then. The presence of God is in you now. If anyone is a believer, the Holy Spirit is indwelling them. And so it follows that you, individual Christians, are called to be a house of prayer for all the nations. For all the nations doesn't mean you pray for all the nations, although that's a wonderful thing and you ought to. It meant that all the nations could come and seek the Lord. Listen, any race, any color, any creed, any background, any nationality should be able to come to you and connect with God through you. What do I mean? I mean because there is Christ in you. Because you have in this earthen vessel, according to Corinthians, the gospel. You have the secret to communion with God, the forgiveness of sins. So anybody should be able to come and through the gospel entrusted you with you, be able to connect with the Lord. And the way that we cultivate that in our lives is by making ourselves to be a house of prayer. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your primary concern in life ought to be prayer. And that's true for very few of us in here. There's two people in this room today. People that give importance to prayer and people that don't. People that give importance to prayer are going to love this message. People that don't are going to hate it. I don't care. My job is not to please you. It's to teach the Bible. You are to be a house of prayer. And we'll discuss why in a minute. That is to be a primary daily occupation of yours praying. Now, this building, this is just a funky old warehouse down by the beach. There's nothing sacred about this building. There's nothing holy about this building, as there was the temple in that time. What has become holy is you, because of Christ in you, because of the forgiveness through the cross. But when we come together corporately, we make this into the house of God, so to speak. This becomes a holy place, not because of the structure of it, but because of the people the saints of God in it. Understand that according to the New Testament, every Christian is called a saint. It's not reserved for certain people. Every Christian, because of their position in Christ, is called a saint. And so in your individual lives, you are to be a house of prayer. And when we come together corporately, this church is to be a house of prayer. Prayer should be our primary concern. Should be the thing that is most important to us and nearest to us. The early church had this in mind. The early church got this concept. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, concerning the first church, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And again in Acts 2, 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We see in the early church, and we're going to go all the way through the book of Acts and read a lot of verses. They'll all be up in the PowerPoint. We see in the early church that the primary occupation was that of praying. Why was that? It's because the early church was so near to Christ. You understand that the leadership were the ones that had walked with Christ for some three years. And the thing that singularly most impressed those disciples about Jesus, having been with him, was his prayer life the importance that he placed upon prayer. They saw repeatedly that Jesus would rise before dawn and go to the mountain there. He'd be alone praying to the Father. 
They saw that he prayed before important decisions, that he prayed concerning miracles, that he prayed the night before the cross, that he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he prayed upon the cross. The thing concerning the life of Jesus that was most potent to those who were with him was his prayer life. And so when he ascended and entrusted the church to the apostles, the thing that they first endeavored to do was to engage in prayer. They were so impressed that it is the only thing they ever asked the Lord to teach them. Read the Gospels. They never come to Jesus and say, Oh, Lord, teach us thus and so. Oh, Jesus, that walking on water gig. Oh, I'd be the best surfer if you just teach us that walking on water gig. Lord, that time you told me to go catch a fish and I caught the fish and it opened up and there was enough money for my taxes in it. Oh, Lord, show me that one. They never asked the Lord to show them that. They never asked the Lord to teach them about raising people from the dead, about healing the lepers, about any of that. The only thing that impressed them enough to say, you've got to tell us about that, is prayer. You see, they begin to catch that prayer is powerful, that prayer changes things in the world, that prayer is a privilege, that prayer is to be the primary concern of the church. And so, it continued to be their strategy. When persecution broke out in the church, they prayed, Acts 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. After persecution, the ministry began to grow and expand, and the needs were great. And so we read in Acts 6, verses 4 through 5, the apostles saying, We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. Church was expanding at such a rate, there were so many needs in caring for the poor and the needs for the people, that the leadership of the church came and said, Okay, you guys do the work of the ministry Our job as the apostles and the leaders is to pray and to give attention to the ministry of the word. And the whole church said, yeah, absolutely. The most important thing is prayer. You go do that. We're going to take care of all this other stuff so that you can do that. That's the most important thing. The first martyr in the church, Stephen, his last words were prayer, Acts 760. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he died. The first Gentile that was ever saved, uh, Cornelius, the centurion, Acts chapter 10, verse 2, it says about him, Cornelius was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. When there was a bump in the road in the early church and Peter the apostle was arrested and imprisoned, the people began to pray, Acts 12, 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but... Prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. When it was time for the first missionaries to go out from the church, it happened through and because of prayer. Acts 13, verses 2 through 3. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. As the ministry began to expand even more through missionary efforts and churches were being planted, we read that prayer was of primary importance. It says in Acts 14, 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When Paul and Silas were arrested for the gospel and thrown in prison, prayer was what they were consumed with. 
Acts 16.25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. When it came time that Paul knew he would never return to Ephesus, and he had his last meeting with the elders at the church of Ephesus, the leadership there, he prayed. Acts 20, verse 36. And he knelt down, and he prayed with them all. The early church was consumed with prayer because that is what Jesus taught them to be consumed with. And the model of prayer continued. Book of Philippians, Paul prays, verse, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He prays for the Philippians, says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. And you and I now, listen to me, need to understand this morning that prayer is not an option for the Christian. It's commanded throughout Scripture. The whole of the New Testament, in various and sundry ways, commands you and I to be about the Father's business through prayer. Romans chapter 12, verse 12 says, Rejoice in hope, persevere in trouble, and be devoted to prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, commands us, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for my life? What should I be doing? What is his big picture? What is his will today? I'll tell you where his will starts, right there. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all the other things will be added unto you, Jesus said. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, First of all, he's given instruction to the church what they should be about. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, and verse 4 says, who desires that all men would be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, it's very clear that the Word of God commands the church of God to be about prayer. We're told there to pray for those who are in authority, to pray for the saints, to pray for all men for their salvation, to be praying in the Spirit, to be praying without ceasing, to be praying instead of worrying, to rejoice, to pray with thanksgiving. It's not an option for the church. It's a command. But here's what's exciting. God answers our prayers. Why do you think God has you pray if he doesn't intend on answering your prayers? It's not a dog and pony show, you understand, Christianity. It's not as though God is sitting up there like some circuit master and going, okay, now do a backflip. Now jump forward. Now roll over. 
Now pray like this. Now say one of those prayers. Oh, give me one of those. That's not what's happening, people. God has us pray because he answers prayers. We're going to develop this in a minute, but I want you to see that we can have confidence in that fact. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Jesus said it this way, ask anything in my name and you have that which you ask. Now understand God is no fool. God's not going to let you push him into a situation where he's got to do something outside his will. There's a stipulation for our prayers being answered, isn't there? Pray according to God's will. He knows that he hears us and we know that we have the answer. Jesus said, pray according to my name. It's not a little tag on on the end, you understand. It bugs me a little bit. If you pray this way, I'm sorry, but it bugs me a little bit. When people say these prayers, and everybody's got their prayer voice. No condemnation. Everybody's got their prayer voice. It's cool. Everybody's got a phone voice. No big deal. You ever notice that? You'd be going along talking to somebody, da, 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 yeah, man, it's cool and everything. Your cell phone ring. Oh, hello. <laughs> everybody's got a prayer voice. No big deal. But it bugs me when I hear people pray, and they're praying forever, and they're praying these wonderful things, and at the end, they go, Jesus, name, amen. What did you say? Jesus, name, amen. What did you say? God blesses food, blesses me, good God, good bread, let's eat, Jesus, name, amen. It's not some little tag on. Jesus said to pray in his name, but it's not some magical tag, and the Lord goes, oh! He said in Jesus' name, we've got to do it. Michael, Gabriel, get to it. You've got to do it now. He said in Jesus' name. <laughs> Jesus' name represents his character. Who he is, pray according to the character of Christ and who he is, and you will be praying in the will of God. If you ask anything according to the will of God, you have that for which you asked. God's not going to do something that's outside of his will. But I think if you begin to pray, you would be surprised what's in his will. I think you would be amazed. I think you'd be astounded. You might say to me, well, I don't know what his will is. That's why I don't pray. Gee whiz, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do next week. Must as God's will. That's why I don't pray. Listen, it doesn't matter what you pray, just pray. If you are praying a dumb prayer, God will let you know. But as long as you are praying, he's got your attention. He's got a little bit of your heart. So just pray. I did, before this church, I did college ministry for seven years. This was the number one prayer that I heard all the time. Lord, I really like them. Make them like me, Jesus. <laughs> Non-stop. Lord, uh, she's hot and everything, God. Uh, can, you, can, you, can you show her? I'm, uh, can you make her like me? Seven years I hear that prayer. Every single week, people come up to me. Oh, Pastor Britt. Like they're all broken and everything. Like they're going to begin to pray for Africa or something. <laughs> Britt, there's this girl, man. Listen. And they, they always, people think I have special knowledge. I have no special knowledge. Anything I know, it's because I read the Bible. People ask me, is she the one for me? I'm surprised there's anybody for you, brother. I don't, she's, <laughs> is she the one for, I God's will be done. I don't know, man. You bless. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Proverbs says you're going to be, oh, it's got to be God. They don't know, but they just continue to pray. 
Listen, God will show you. He's going to answer your prayers. You can be yes or no. Or sometimes chill out a little bit. Just wait. Just keep praying. Just keep persevering. So you might not know what God's will is, but just pray anyway, and he will demonstrate to you. If you never pray, you're doubly bad off. Not only do you not know what God's will is, but you will never discover it. If you have an attitude of prayer, you might not know what his will is, but it will become apparent soon as you seek him in prayer. God answers our prayers, and possibly the most wonderful point of the morning, God loves our prayers. God delights in our prayers. He loves to hear you pray. It's pictured wonderfully in Revelation 5.8. Picture of heaven here. And when they had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. It's Jesus on the throne having each one a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Strip away all your weird New Age uh, pot-smoking connotations of incense. In the Bible, it was a good thing. The aroma was pleasing. It was something that was wonderful. When it says here that before the throne of God are these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, the Christians, you and I, it means that it's pleasing to God to have your prayers before his throne. Please don't think that when you begin to pray, there's a God going, busy, Brit. Gosh, you're praying again. Okay, give it to me quick. What do you want? Come on. I already know you want that. What, what else? Give me something new. That's not how God is. He delights in our prayers. You are his child. He delights to hear your voice. He wants to be with you. I believe that's one of the major purposes of why he has ordained prayer is just to get you in his presence and talking to him. It cultivates intimacy. Men who are married. If you're not married, this is a hint. Write it down. Go to the bank with it. How do you develop intimacy with your wife? How do you connect with her? Super Bowl. <laughs> Super Bowl. I'm there, I'm home, I'm in the house, I watch, she make the food, she bring me the drink. Super Bowl. Connection. <laughs> that's never how. If that's what you think, you need to read the Bible four times. <laughs> Straight through. It's through conversation. That's why men and women, sometimes it's like this. The man says, conversation? What? What? Yeah. <laughs> Food. <laughs> but the woman says, oh, honey, sit down. Now, tell me about your day. <laughs> oh. Hmm. And, and what did he say? Oh, he didn't. What did she say? What'd you do? What color was it? Was it too hot? <laughs> what? Tell me about your day. Men, you understand this. For this, this is building intimacy with them. Do you understand that we are the bride of Christ? There ought to be in your heart a longing to conversate with God in order to build intimacy. He is our bridegroom. We are the bride. In the Christian who is walking with the Lord, there ought to be this longing to talk to God. There is on his part the longing to speak with his bride and the longing to hear from his child. We're his bride and simultaneously his child. This morning I was up at 3 a.m. studying, and uh, our junior high pastor always studies with me on Sunday mornings. And uh, we're in the living room studying, doing our stuff. And I heard, hey, Dad, from the back room. I'm like, wow, Isaiah's up early. And I go running back there to see what he's doing, all excited, and he's sound asleep. He said, hey, Dad, in his sleep. I loved it. 
I just sat there and kissed his fat cheeks and just wiggled him and rubbed his hair and pressed on his little nose and played with his lips. And I was hoping that he'd say, hey, Dad, again. I love to hear his voice in the morning. When I'm up before dawn doing my business with the Lord, I cannot wait for my boy Isaiah to wake up and for my little baby Daisy to wake up. I cannot wait to hear their voices in the morning. Don't you know that it's the same with your father who is in heaven? He is waiting on high to have compassion on you, the word of God says. He is waiting to hear the voice of his children in the morning. He delights in it. He's not annoyed by it. He's not too busy. He is not some mean other far-off God. He wants to hear your voice. He made your voice box. He shaped it. Your voice sounds exactly like your God wants it to sound. It's beautiful. So prayer is that which most impressed the disciples. It is the occupation of the early church. It is commanded for the church today throughout the New Testament, as well as for individuals. God answers it. God loves it. And therefore, we ought to be a house of prayer. We, meaning you, me, individually, and we, meaning us, corporately. A house of prayer. I'm going to say this very plain. Offend many of you, make you sad. Why never come back? Don't care. Prayerlessness is a sin. Bible paints it that way. Not me. I don't preach Brit's ideas up here. The, The Bible. Prayerlessness is a sin. A sin? What kind of sin? A sin, sin. I mean, sin is sin before God, understand? Before God, all sin is punishable by death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Because prayer is so clearly commanded in Scripture, when we are not praying, when it's not an occupation, when we're not devoted to it, that is sinfulness in our lives. It needs to be repented of. God, I am sorry. I've neglected prayer. I'm consumed with all my own stuff. You've given me a responsibility and an honor and a calling in prayer. I've neglected it. God, I repent. Forgive me. It needs to be repented of. It has tremendous ramifications in the here and now, prayerlessness does. You know, sin is sin before God. Speaking of eternal punishment, it's all the same. But temporally speaking, there's degrees of ramifications or outfall, right? You might tell a little lie, uh, yeah, uh, this, that, and the other, no big deal. You kill somebody, there's some bigger ramifications to that one, usually. I don't think there is any sin on the face of the earth that is more grievous than prayerlessness. I don't think there's a single sin that has more negative ramifications and consequences than prayerlessness. Because it affects change in our world, we have, as Christians, a moral responsibility to pray. It's told us to pray for the leaders and for individuals and without ceasing. The prophet Samuel said in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Far be it from me that I would sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you people. Samuel knew that if he stopped praying for the people, it would be a sin. The Lord made it very clear in Luke 18, verse 1. It says in Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. I want you to see the responsibility of this next one. Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. Very important text. Listen. Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers 
into his harvest. There's a command. That's a command for the church, for the disciples. We're to be praying that God would raise up people and send them out into the harvest. That's what we've prayed here at Reality Carpinteria. That's why we've got people that have been sent out to Indonesia, to Uganda, to Tanzania, to the Yucatan, to India, because we pray when we come together and pray, Lord, send laborers into the harvest field. The harvest is plenty. God, you've prepared it. It's your harvest. Notice that. It's his harvest. He's called the Lord of the harvest. But he says that we are to pray that people might go out into it. When we don't, it is sinful. But when we don't, and it has tremendous ramifications, in other words, God will not. He's invited us into a partnership. It's my harvest. I've prepared it. I'm going to reap it. Here's your role, Britt. You pray. Here's your role, reality. You guys pray, okay? I've prepared the harvest. I'm the one who saves people. You're not going to save anybody. It's my Holy Spirit. I'm the one who went to the cross. Okay, I did all this. Here's your role. You pray, okay? And when you pray and ask me to send laborers into the harvest field, I'll do that, but, but you got to pray. The clear flip side of the coin is if we don't pray, he won't. And that has tremendous ramifications for the salvation and well-being of many. Here's why prayerlessness is such a grievous sin is because prayer is God's ordained method of accomplishing things in our world. See, God could do it any way that he wants. Listen, God could skip you entirely and send angels to do all of it. He could create some non-prayer being. God could decide, I don't need prayer. These people are never going to pray. I'm going to create this new little thing and all the things that are in my will that I want to do that I've caused them to partner and pray in, I'm going to send this little thing to do it. God could do things any way he wants to, but he has ordained prayer. I don't fully understand why. I don't always agree with it. It's what God has done. And God is right and I'm wrong. He's called us to a partnership through prayer. It's God's ordained method of accomplishing his work in our world. Here's a principle. God loves to bless people, but even more, he loves to bless them in answer to prayer. You didn't read it. You didn't hear it. Or you would have said, oh, that's good. God loves to bless people, but even more, he loves to do it in answer to prayer. It's a quote from Wesley Duell's book called Prevailing Prayer. God loves to bless people, but even more, he loves to do it in answer to prayer. Here's an example, Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. You know, Abraham, his wife's name was Sarah. Sarah was an extremely good-looking woman, according to the Bible. So good-looking that when Abraham went into a region, he was sure that all the other men would covet his wife. And so men who were mightier than him, kings and such, if they knew that this was his wife, they would kill him to take her for his own. And so he would go into a place and say, yeah, it's Sarah, my sister. And so Abraham goes, and he's before King Abimelech. Sarah, my sister. And the king goes, oh, she's not your wife? Wonderful. Come and be my wife. The king takes her, doesn't do anything to her, but that night the king is sleeping, and the Lord comes to the king and says, listen, Abraham, I mean, listen, Abimelech, excuse me, this is not Abraham's Sarah, uh, Abraham's sister. Lord, help me. This is Abraham's wife. And I'm going to kill you, Abimelech, because you took this guy's wife. And Abimelech says, wait a minute, Lord. You know my heart. I'm innocent before you. He said it was his sister. I didn't know it was his wife. Lord, I don't want you to kill me. I'll give her back. 
And the Lord says, I know your heart. So here's what I want you to do. You're right. You were innocent in it. You go, give her back to Abraham. And then because Abraham is a prophet of mine, ask him to pray for you and I will spare your life. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God wanted to spare his life anyway. God said, I know you're innocent. Just go give the chick back. But by the way, for me to spare your life, you got to ask Abraham to pray. When Abraham does it, even though it's my will and I want to do it, when he prays, then I'm going to do it. Do you understand that? No. You don't. Don't say amen. You don't understand jack cheese. You, we, we don't understand that. God, that was your will? That's what you wanted to do? but you were only going to do it when Abraham prayed? I don't fully understand that, Lord, but I see there's a responsibility when you call us to pray. Another one is in Ezekiel chapter 36, the Valley of Dry Bones. God there resurrecting the nation of Israel. And he says concerning the millennial kingdom in Ezekiel 36, 37, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock. In the millennial kingdom, he will increase their men like a flock when Israel asks him to do so. It's his desire, it's his will, but you see that he says Israel has to ask. Book of James. You have not because you ask not. God wants to bless. God wants to give. God wants to move. God wants to save. He wants to heal. He wants to renew. He wants to redeem. He wants to remove that obstacle. But you have got to ask. Lord, I wish you hadn't done it that way. It takes so much spiritual fervor on my part. So much easier for you to just do stuff and me to do nothing. That's called fleshing out. It would be easier. And many Christians, that's what they do. Either they have a wrong theology or a bad attitude. Wrong theology saying God's just going to do whatever he does. It doesn't matter if I pray or not. It's not true. Prayer always changes things. Read the Bible. Or a bad attitude that says, I don't care. Worry about mine and my stuff. That's the majority of the church, in my opinion. What's very clear is that God loves to bless people, but even more, he wants to do it through prayer. Prayer is God's ordained method of accomplishing work in our world. We see that when Peter was in prison. Peter was in prison. We know that God was not done with him yet. We know that it would have been God's will to release him. God still had work for him as a leading apostle of the church in that time. But it says Peter was in prison, but the church of God prayed. And the rest of the story is as they prayed, Peter was released. It was God's will. The church had to do their part and pray. Again, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul there says, Pray for me that a door might be open wide that I might minister the word to people. Paul was already called to give the word to people. That was God's express will for him. But he had to, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, tell the church in Colossae, pray for me that this might happen. The other side of the coin, the implication is if we don't pray, it's not going to go. You get that? No, we don't. But we see the responsibility of it. If we believe these things, people, then we would pray. We have at this church prayer meetings every Tuesday at 6 o'clock and every Sunday morning at 7.30. Those are times for us to come together corporately and pray. There is about, at this church today, on this Sunday, about 800 people in two services. There is at the prayer meeting at 7.30 about 20 people. It's deplorable. It's ridiculous. 
It's disgusting. It's wrong. I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to tell you. Don't feel condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if the Lord is saying, yeah, and I've been calling you to pray, then pray. It doesn't just have to be here. It's mostly about your private prayer life. But I have found that those who pray in private love to pray in public. That when there's a prayer meeting, they're so fired up about prayer. They've seen the answers. They've seen God move. They can't wait to get with other people and see what the Lord wants to do. We're called to be a house of prayer, individually and corporately. If we believe these things, if we actually believe that prayer changes things, that God answers, that we have a responsibility in it, we would pray. No lip service. What you do is what you believe. Church in America does not believe this. Mark chapter 11 now, Jesus is going to give us two points on prayer to close with. Two points. Verse 20, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you curse is withered. Peter was amazed. Lord, you cursed that thing yesterday. It's actually withered today unbelievable the power that you have, Lord. You just said to it, may no one eat fruit of you again. Look at that thing from the roots up in 24 hours. It's in shambles. Verse 22. And Jesus answered and said to him, it's no big deal, Peter. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever, whoever, whatever Christian says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore, I'm telling you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. It's very clear that we have got to have faith when we come to God in prayer. Faith is a key component. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, defines that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We don't see God. We don't see how he's going to work out everything, but we have faith that he is. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes in must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. When you come to the Lord in prayer, you have got to come believing that he is faithful, that he is able. In fact, it says in James chapter 1, James chapter 1 says in verse 5, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let that man expect that he will let that man not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. You hear what the word of the Lord says? If you're gonna come not believing, not having faith that God is able, don't even ask. Lord says, expect that you will receive nothing from me. You're unstable in all your ways. You're double-minded. Valentine's Day is coming up, isn't it? My wife, God bless her, will not let me forget this fact. Every day for a week now. Valentine's Day, what are we going to do for Valentine's Day? She tries to mask it in innocence. What, what are we going to do for Valentine's Day? It just popped into my head. It hasn't popped into my head in four minutes. <laughs> Valentine's Day, what are, what are we going to do? Uh, Men, you better get your gig together. Monday, February 14th, get your gig together. Get your babysitter now. They're going to be in short supply. I've already got mine. But my wife, what are we going to do on, uh, you know, Valentine's Day? Okay, honey, I got a plan. 
Valentine's Day comes, I say to my woman, woman, go get dressed. I got plans for you and me. Go put some clothes on. I'm going to take you here. We're going to do this and so and the other. And she goes, uh-uh. What? Woman, put your clothes on. <laughs> go get dressed. We're going out. Not even going to bother to get dressed. Why? I don't think you'll take me out. What? Did I lie lately? Have I ever said, get dressed, I'm taking you out, not taking you out? Do every year at, at Valentine's Day, I pretend to take you out, and then I actually don't last minute, I flake out? Have I ever done that? You've never failed me. Then put your clothes on. Get dressed. I just don't believe it. Woman, listen, this would be insanity. It is triply insane that you don't believe God at his word. It is not so. It is sick. It is wrong. It is sin. It is insanity that you believe there's any situation too, too big for God to handle in your life. Anything that he won't do that's within his will. You are nuts to not come before God in prayer with faith. You know why you don't pray? Because you don't have faith. If you had faith, you would believe that God could do anything. You couldn't stop you from praying. You believe, well, God is going to do this. I'm going to pray. You know why you don't have faith? Because you don't read the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. You read the Word of God, God will cultivate you in your faith. He will move in you for a passion for prayer. If you believed God, you would commit to prayer. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We've got to come to God asking in faith, believing that he's able. Otherwise, we might not even ask. He says that if we have faith, we'll be able to move mountains. In Jewish imagery, mountains were a picture of some insurmountable problem. Something too big, something too great, something too gnarly, something too nasty. Jesus here is teaching that nothing will be too hard if we exercise faith. There'll be nothing beyond him. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel in the book of Zechariah, Zerubbabel led the exiles out of Babylon. He led them back to Jerusalem. And he and Joshua were entrusted with the leadership of rebuilding the temple. It was a huge job. It was a giant mountain. It was a huge project. It was beyond them. And the Lord said to Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, Not by power will you do this, and not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone, that is the capstone, the finishing stone of the temple, with shouts of grace, grace to it, or God bless it, God bless it. In other words, God told him, yep, this project is huge. Zerubbabel, it's beyond you. You can't do it with power. You can't do it with might. You can only do it by my spirit of the Lord. And that insurmountable object in front of you will become flat like a plane and the temple will be finished and you will declare, God bless it. He did it with his power, his way, his timing, for his name, for his glory. And all they did was trust in his power and pray and respond in obedience. A.C. Dixon, author, has this quote. I love this quote. When we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we're going to get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we'll get what man can do. When we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. God can do all things. Last point. Just blow my nose real quick, huh? Cool with that? Don't look. 
Look at each other for a second. Gee whiz. Notice I didn't look at it. I want you to take note of that. Most people, they blow their nose and then, why do you do that? I never do that. I don't know why people do that. Follow me as I follow Christ. I did not look at it. Last point. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you transgressions. The clear word of God is if you're going to come to him in prayer, you've got to come to him with a clean heart, having forgiven anyone that you've got a problem against, having surrendered any hardness, any bitterness, any sin that you're hiding in there. It's got to be surrendered. Otherwise, our prayers are rendered ineffective, not powerful with God, useless. And when it says, if you don't forgive, your father will not forgive you, it's not with regards to saving grace. It's not with regards to that first forgiveness where we're made brand new, but it's that daily forgiveness that allows us to abide in his presence. It's the forgiveness of the Father that restores fellowship. In other words, when you're hiding sin in your heart, bitterness, unforgiveness, malice, slander, all these things, it breaks intimacy with God and your prayers are hindered. Psalm 66 verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. James 5, 16. The fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 1 John 3, 21 through 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if there's no hidden sin that we're harboring in there, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things which are pleasing in his sight. That's not to say that to pray you've got to be perfect or disqualify all of us. But there needs to be a lifestyle of obedience, a lifestyle of abiding, not a lifestyle of secret sin, not a lifestyle of harboring and hiding those things. If you're harboring and you're hiding those things and you're holding on to them and you're sneaking around in sin, forget about your prayer life. It's a mess until you repent. It's ineffective. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. So repent. So confess. So surrender it. Someone you need to forgive, forgive them that your prayers might become powerful with God. Disobedience, continual disobedience hinders our prayers. Last thing, I'll say this to the husbands, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. You husbands likewise... Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Not loving your wife right, men, prayers are rendered ineffective, hindered. Not forgiving others as the Lord has forgiven you, prayers are rendered ineffective, weak. How did the Lord forgive you? He just forgave you because of the cross. Don't try to prove yourself right. Well, I'll forgive them when they say they're sorry. Oh, I was right. I'm just, I'm, I'll forgive them, but first I've got to convince them of my position, show them I'm right, and they're dumb. Don't do that. That's not what the Lord does. That's not what the Lord does. The Lord just forgives you because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the same power of the cross that allows us to forgive others. Be restored to intimacy with Jesus 
and have prayers that are powerful before him. Amen? God, we thank you for the privilege and the honor and the responsibility of prayer. I pray this now for this church and for these individuals, that if there's any busyness in our heart that is hindering prayer, that you would overturn the tables. If there's anything seated in our hearts that would hinder what you want to do, would take its wrong place there and not allow us to have intimacy of communion with you. Pray that you would overturn that chair, that you chase out the money changers, that you chase away the crookedness and the busyness, and you'd free up our hearts, that we might commune with you in sweetness and wholeness and spirit and in truth. We might receive that righteousness from you, that our prayers might be effective and accomplish much in the world around us. God, we don't understand everything about prayer, not by any means. But we do understand that we need faith to be walking in obedience and that we do have a responsibility. God, make us men and women of prayer. Make us a church of prayer. Teach us how. Some of us today, we just need little baby steps. Thank you that you're the Father that knows perfectly how to raise us. Give us baby steps. Some of us need a serious slap. Thank you, you're the Father that loves enough to discipline Discipline us. But unclutter and unfetter and untangle our hearts. Make us men and women who would pray to you and see your glory come. Do this in us, Lord.